I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with yoga teacher and author Eddie Stern. Eddie's a yoga teacher from New York City who specializes in Ashtanga yoga and yoga therapy. Eddie presides over a Hindu temple, the Brooklyn Yoga Club, where I've been. He co-publishes a philosophical journal and is a leading proponent in various fields relating to health and wellness. His programs include the Urban Yogis Program to reduce incidences of gun violence in inner cities and the Breathe, Move, Rest Program that offers health and wellness curriculums for underserved public school districts. Eddie is also the author of several books, including his March 2019 release, One Simple Thing, 
a new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life, which includes a forward by Deepak Chopra. Welcome to the Meta Hour podcast, Eddie. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I was also uh, at your beautiful place in Manhattan before you moved, which was one of the uh, more traditional uh, temples and, and yoga centers. It was so interesting. Yeah, that was a really beautiful place. I'm sorry we're not there anymore. And you're also an advisor on our Breathe, Move, Rest project. That's true, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was kind of an unforgettable um, moment sitting in the back room uh, with these former gang members, you know, as yep. you were about to teach a yoga class for them and just hearing their impressions and their experiences of the whole program. And Yeah, it, it's actually... Um, they're an amazing group of young adults who we're working with. And um, the the way that they've soaked up the different yoga and meditation teachings, they're like sponges and how they translate it into their own language to help their communities is like, you know, they go beyond anything that I could deliver in those areas by there, far. There was one beautiful, tough little girl. I mean, really almost childlike it seemed. But she was saying something like she felt guilty because she uh, had determined to become a vegetarian and she's like broken it, you know, and it's like the sense of resolve and, and structure and it was amazing. Yeah, completely. Um, and, you know, I think that for, you know, the area of New York I live in and how I've grown up and, and the people I normally teach, I forget that access to these things is so difficult for most of the people of the world that you know, as soon as they have access, they take to it the same like you and I took to yeah. it when we first started doing these things. Like when I became a vegetarian, I was full on, like that was it. I was just never going to touch another piece of anything. Yeah. And you have these, you know, these kids from the projects and that, you know, as soon as they hear the potential of what this will do for them, whether it's yoga or vegetarian diet or whatever, it's the same enthusiasm that like that we had. And I forget, like it's there for them. They just need to be able to access it, you know. Yeah, but I guess access wasn't so easy for us too when, you know, 30 years ago. Well, it was so different. How did you access it? How did you get interested in yoga and move toward that practice? Well, I w was at a summer camp the first time I ever did yoga and one of the counselors there taught uh, for two weeks and I took the class. And um, it's something I speak about every once in a while. It's not in my book, but that the, um, uh, actually it is, it's in the appendix, that I don't remember much about the yoga class, but I remember Shavasana at the end and I would go into this like quiet space where there was just absolutely nothing. And uh, it was so profoundly like deep that I wanted to keep doing it when I went home, but I was afraid that I wouldn't wake up from that state and that the yoga teacher or the counselor knew a special technique for bringing us out from it. And if my parents didn't know it and they found me and I was lying on my back, like, you know, whacked out completely, <laughs> what if they didn't know how to bring me out of it? So I didn't practice again <laughs> until I was about 18 and I was working at a record store uh, called Bleaker Bob's in the village. <laughs> and uh, there was a guy working there who had done yoga with Amrit Desai and had Shaktipat from him and was telling me about his like, um, experiences of total oneness with everybody and everything mm. um, after receiving Shaktipat. And I thought to myself, this sounds a whole lot better than LSD and <laughs> I want to try it. So he, this, his name was Ted. He started teaching me some yoga. He encouraged me to become a vegetarian and that was my entry point. But, you know, it was super granola back then, you know, maybe two or three yoga schools in New York. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, I, I look back at myself, you know, I went to India when I was 18. I'd never even been to California before. And it was really like massive personal suffering that drove me because uh, the things were so inaccessible. You know, I was going to school in Buffalo, New York when I first and heard about Buddhism. I heard about meditation in this Asian philosophy course. And I looked around Buffalo and it was a long time ago. You know, it was not, not a yoga center in every street corner or, you know, mindfulness was like a thing. It was not like known, you know. Uh, and I ended up having to go to India in order to access a method, which is what I was really looking for. And um, I think about that a lot just in terms of the trajectory of these practices, you know, like uh, like those kids that, that you teach, they have strong motivation. They have strong intention because their suffering is, is right there. You know, it's in their everyday circumstance. And, uh, you know, how many people these days are just drawn by kind of a curiosity or something else? And, you know, what does it take to um, – is it the same, you know, if your motivation is very different, if your your sense of uh, strong intention is different? Is it just a question of exposure and then you have it? Yeah, I think I think you also hit the nail on the head by bringing in the, the um, idea of suffering because no one goes to yoga or meditation if they don't recognize that they're suffering. Mm-hmm. And it says this clearly in the yoga text, like that's why you come to it. You want there to be an end to your suffering. You recognize you have it. And um, and definitely in a lot of areas of our country and of the world, there's extreme suffering, which comes from environment. Um, it doesn't necessarily come from a drought or from, you know, a cruel leader. Uh, it might just come from living in an area where there's no access mm-hmm. to good food, mm-hmm. healthy mm-hmm. food, um, where there's a lot of crime, where there's all these different types of things which are going to create an oppressive environment, which is then going to lead you to look for arenas that you can express yourself. And not all of those are going to be positive arenas. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why people end up doing things like anything from selling drugs to picking up a gun to um, looking for outlets through aggression and violence that might be a um, symptom of the oppression of the area that they live in. So now I haven't grown up in that kind of an area, so I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to stereotype any of the type of stuff that that happens in those environments because that's not everything that there is about a project. There are people who are loving and caring and supportive and doing their best to create a positive environment for the people who are growing mm-hmm, up there. Mm-hmm. Um, Erica Ford is an example of someone like this who has devoted her life to bettering the conditions of these types of areas, providing yoga and meditation and information about diet and about relaxation is just one of those things which is helpful in those environments, along with therapy and talking, uh, creating strong community, having a place where people can mm-hmm. gather and and discuss um, what's going on in their lives and, and deal with the traumatic events that have occurred to them. So all of these things um, create a big circle of, um, of wellness in a place like the Baisley Housing Projects or a place, you know, an area like South Jamaica, Queens in New York, where mm-hmm. there used to be very high levels of gun violence, which have now dropped dramatically in certain target areas because of a collection of interventions. Like it's not just yoga, it's not just meditation. It's yoga, meditation, therapy, talking, support, um, uh, intervention, mm-hmm. diet, all of those types of things to create really a holistic living environment. So when we talk about access, it's not just access like this one particular thing. It has to be access to everything before there can be real transformation. 
I'm really curious now when when you um like I met those kids at your center yeah in Manhattan. Do you ever go there? Because uh, when you talk about that holistic program, I think about like a kitchen, you know, and mm-hmm. cooking and lessons and um the yoga teachers in the other room, you know, and like yes, um well Erica has uh, an office there right me right in that area where people come mm-hmm. and it's a real community place but i and i haven't been out there in a while now just because of my st- schedule in the new mm-hmm. school in brooklyn but when we started the program for the first two years i went there every week uh during the summertime to teach open classes in the playground in their housing development and all those guys they basically live on hip-hop time which means if you're an hour late you're on time mm. and i live on like, you know, New York City, you know, white boy time, which is you got to get there five minutes early. And so I would show up uh, to the playground. I'd be the only one there and and waiting for everyone to show up. And one day one guy came up to me and he said, you know, well, you need some help? And I said, I'm looking for Shaquille and Chaton. So he went over to Shaquille and Chaton. He called them up and he said, hey, guys, there's a cop here looking for you. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> which they thought was really funny because here are the stereotypes again. There's a white guy in the projects, you know, he's bald, he's middle-aged, he's a cop. Uh, and, you know, and we have those same stereotypes that we project onto mm-hmm. any black person that we see. We think, mm-hmm. oh, you know, see, what is he, a hip-hop star? Or is yeah. he, who is he? Yeah. Um, simply based on appearance. Um, and uh, this has its own kind of trauma that goes along mm-hmm. with it as well. What's interesting, like in your book, well, you you write so much about the nervous system, you know, which is a whole other way of looking at a human being. You know, it's not like cultural conditioning or that projection, you know, but how are we functioning actually just in a body? And uh, I wonder if you could talk about what yoga therapy is and its relationship to the nervous system. Um, sure, I'll do my best. Okay. So basically the word yoga therapy that are being used these days um, are a way of looking at yoga as it's applied to an individual and not as an individual adapting themselves to a particular um, mode of practicing something. Uh, However, like literally speaking, all yoga is therapy. Like we already talked about how suffering brings you to yoga. And if you want to deal with your suffering, then you need some type of therapeutic approach. And what the yogis did was they said, well, we're going to use your body and your breath and your mind and your emotions and your sense organs. And we're going to fix the misperception you have about the way you view yourself and the world. And we're going to fine tune a few other things along the way. Mm -hmm. And that's basically going to be our therapeutic approach to fixing the greatest disease in your life which is the illusion or the delusion that you are your narrative that you live by. So this is like, this is the greatest illness. Mm -hmm. We think, I think I'm Eddie. I think I'm a yoga teacher. I think I'm a dad. I think I'm all these different things. And that's just like the story that I tell about myself. And I get attached to my story. Of course, you know all these things and all your listeners know all these things by this point as well. I get attached to my story. I identify with my story and then I suffer. And so the therapy for that is to slowly unwind the story. The hardest story to get past is the story that I am my body. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. essentially, Mm -hmm. that's the hardest one. Um, 
So that's what yoga asanas are for. They're to help strengthen and um, enhance our connection to the body and our understanding of the body to see that the body is a process which is changing all the time and that um, our nervous system is a process of uh, transforming or uh, cognizing information that's coming in from the outside world so that our inner environment can adapt to it and respond to the outer environment. And this is the process of the nervous system. And then the mind is the cognizer of all this, presents it to the intellect who decides what they're going to do with all the incoming information. So we're a bundle of processes that are adapting and changing to the external environment all the time. Um, and at the same time, we have an inner environment, uh, according to the yogis, which doesn't change, which is the witness state or which is consciousness. And we have to be able to understand all of these changing environments to see that in a very Buddhist type of sense that they're not real, they're not permanent mm -hmm. because they're going to go away one day. And who is it which is watching these changing environments? So the use of the body and the use of the breath with the yoga practices is to understand these changing adaptive environments so that we can form a greater relationship with witness consciousness or when, something like when that. When you say body, are you including emotion, the somatic expression of emotion? Yeah. Because when you say that our greatest identification is with the body, sometimes we say, you know, in uh, Buddha land, <laughs> Buddhist land, um, <laughs> you know, like uh, certainly we, we are very identified and attached to the body as the sense of self. Like, But if you hit your elbow, you are unlikely to say, I am a sore elbow. Whereas if you're, if you have a flash of anger, you're more likely to say, I'm a very angry person. They always will be. So there's some, some quality of um, conditioning around our emotions and, and thoughts, even that it's stickier, even sometimes than the body, but it's all expressing itself through the body. Exactly, because when you get really angry, what happens? Your heart speeds up, you, your palms start to sweat, you feel heat in your body. I mean, you, all of our emotions have a physical component. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So our emotions are in our body. Um, yeah. As we in the Buddha land, we know this very well. <laughs> our emotions are in our body. Um, and the problem is the mind starts to think that it's separate from the body. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, I, I don't think all of the blame for this can fall on Descartes and, you know, the, <laughs> the reductionists. I think this is a problem that's been going on for a long time. Um, so I think this is one of the reasons why so many people are drawn to physical practices like Tai Chi and yoga asanas, because they can feel that as they are doing something in a particular way with their body and their breath, they're calming their emotions at the same time. And this is one of the effects that a lot of the urban yogis felt uh, very quickly was that they were getting less angry or they were able to control their anger more. Uh, they were able to strategize a little bit more about how they wanted to respond to situations that were happening around them, being able to pause and take a moment before they said something or say nothing at all. So this be became like a really fascinating thing for me. Like, how is it that by just doing some sun salutations and doing a few minutes of deep breathing, can you begin to release anger from your body? Mm -hmm. What is that? What are emotions? You know, yeah, are, yeah. are emotions physiological and not mental? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I was trying to get at in my book also was because sometimes we think about happiness as a mental state. Mm -hmm. Like if I could just be happy, you know, if I could get this thing, then I'd be happy. All the regular stuff that we talk about mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but happiness is fleeting, you know, especially if it's caused by an, an external object. Mm -hmm. And if happiness 
is said to be a lasting thing, like it's said in yoga. Nothing lasts in your mind. So happiness cannot be in your mind because it can't last there mm -hmm. because the mind is going to change one second to the next. So, I mean, is it in your body? Well, your body is changing all the time too. But is there a way that you can put your body into a particular condition where happiness can be expressed through your body and felt through the body because you're accessing something deeper than a changing mental state? Um, and I think that's another good use of postures and breathing to find a physiological basis for happiness and a physiological basis of releasing the narrative that we're bound to through brainstem activities, limbic system activities, cortical function, um, that there's something else happening there that if we can just kind of hack our nervous system with these practices, we can find um, the sense of uh, peace or ease or happiness in the body, which is not a changing mental state. But it's something to do, I think, with harmony, right, and balance and um, – it, it, because what I was thinking of when, when you're speaking uh, so beautifully, thank you, was the, um, I was involved uh, through the Garrison Institute for four years in this program working with domestic violence shelter workers. So it was the staff of the shelters and who were traumatized themselves, yeah. you know, um, often both originally, which was what drew them to the work and also just in the course of doing the work. And um, there was one exercise someone led us in, which is, so it was a very visual exercise. It's a little hard to describe verbally, but she read a script, which was like an ordinary day. Like the phone rang and there are three more people coming. We don't have beds. And, you know, then my cousin called and couldn't pick up my daughter from day, you know, and it was just like, and the person, a, person A, say, would respond with their body, you know, as they were hearing this script. So wow. people ended up, you know, all curled over and uptight. And their face was all scrunched. It was like they didn't want to hear anymore. And it was just like these little bundles of tension, you know, like, and then everyone had a partner. So person B with permission would say, you know, can I move you? And like, they would kind of move them into something that just intuitively looked and felt like, oh, now I can breathe or now I can take more in or now I'm, you know, standing like my, um, uh, you know, the length of, of the, the distance of, of my two feet is giving me like a grounding or people had their arms up, you know, like they could receive or, you know, and you just look, and it was so beautiful. And it's the same script, you know, was being read, but here they were. Amazing. And and that's what the practice of yoga, it's almost like you're practicing, it seemed to me you're practicing ahead of time, you know, to feel what it's like when you're, and to train your body to actually move to that place. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it's like, you know, you've said before also that um, if you want to, if you're going to be in a situation where there is conflict and you know that you're going to get angry, at the moment you're in the conflict, if you haven't practiced, you're not going to remember to breathe, you're not going to remember to pause, you're not going to remember to do any of the strategies or techniques that you teach. You have to practice those outside of a conflict zone so that you can yeah, use them yeah. when the time comes. Yeah. That's what practice is for. And that also within our body, like um, we have this function of homeostasis, which is how the body returns itself to balance uh, all throughout our lives. And homeostasis takes a lot of energy of mm -hmm. the body um, and it's continually coming back into balance because the things we're balancing are things like oxygen intake and our blood pressure and the blood pH 
and temperature. So as the temperature changes outside, we have our body adjusts so that you know our core temperature stays the same. And if it gets hot, too hot, then we start to sweat. If it gets too cold, we start to shiver. And the body does all these things and it takes up a lot of energy. So what we're doing with the practice is we're supporting this internal mechanism of returning to balance all the time. Mm -hmm. The postures, the breathing, the meditation, loving kindness, everything is supporting um, the homeostatic functions, which require support, which take up a lot of energy and which never come into balance and then stay there forever, mm -hmm. which would be a dream, of course. But yeah, then, this is great. <laughs> would that be great? <laughs> but th so that's why we have to practice asanas every day, for mm -hmm. particularly the reason you just said. So, mm -hmm. um, And also there's this concept of in yoga of the three bodies and the five sheaths. So the consciousness, um, it, which is just existence, mm -hmm. which is undivided, which is non-local and all these things, um, uh, somehow is contained within us. We won't go into it in this podcast. I have no idea how. And then it's looking through the first sheath, which is the, the causal sheath, which is where all of our uh, karmas or actions that need to be resolved in our life occur. Mm. And so this karana or the causal sheath um, then reflects through the intellect, which is the deciding you know, factor of like George Bush, I'm the decider, <laughs> and then goes to the mind, which measures things, which goes to the breath, which is our mediating factor between uh, the mind and the body, and then our physical sheath, the body is the last thing. So consciousness is projecting itself through the causal sheath, through the intellect, through the mind, through the breath or prana, and then through the body. So our body is a projection of pure consciousness, which is non-local, is everything unlimited everywhere at all times beyond time and space. But we see all these things bifurcated. We see my body is separate from my nervous system. My nervous system is separate from my mind. My mind is separate from my intellect. And so that when um, a, a common example, I'm up late at night, I'm tired, I need to go to sleep, but I have a few more emails to answer. I have enough page of my book to write. I have to finish my schedule. My assistant has been texting me. Um, so my body is saying, I'm tired. I need to go to sleep. My mind says, do a little more because you're not done. And the nervous system gets stuck in the middle and has to carry out the dictates of the mind until it collapses and said enough. And, and so this is how we get like the, the huge epidemic of burnout is because of this. Mm -hmm. We're not integrated on all these levels. So we have a top-down approach and we have a, a bottom-up approach. A top-down approach is to get directly in touch with consciousness and say, I am pure being and pure being is projecting itself and emanating and manifesting through my intellect, through my mind, through my emotions, through my sense organs, through my nervous system, through my body. My body is a presentation of consciousness. Therefore, I can be relaxed. Now, this is difficult, but some people, mm -hmm. they can do this approach. That's a top-down approach. A bottom-up approach is where you say, I'm struggling with all these things, so the first thing I need to do is I'm going to control my body a little because I feel that it's different than my mind. And when I control my body a little, then I can control my breath a little. And that's my link to my mind. When I control, control my breath a little, smooth it, quiet it when I get angry, then I can control the mind a little. And then I see, oh, these are actually connected. And that my mental states and my emotional states are being reflected through my, my breath. 
like when my breath speeds up when I get angry or when it slows down when I concentrate. And that affects what's happening in my body. Is my body relaxed? Is my body tense? Am I stiffening, getting ready for a fight? Do I feel that everything around me is a threat and that's how I'm holding my body all the time? Or do I feel that I'm in a non-defensive state like Stephen Porges says when the vagus nerve is toned? And in that non-defensive state, then um, I can connect with people. I can connect with myself. Um, I recognize this, um, this uh, sameness in others, which is really how society um, cooperates and comes together and, and expresses the best in us. So um, this is, uh, uh, I, I think, two valuable approaches in yoga and two different mm -hmm. ways that people do it. There's this consciousness first and, or there's the body first. And both of them end up in the same place. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I would think that with consciousness first, um, first of all, for a lot of people, that would be a gift, right? <laughs> like, Yeah. I mean, I think of, because for me, uh, having teachers was very important. And some of that glimpse, and it was really just a glimpse, was because of them. You know, it was a sense of possibility that I'd never imagined before. And then there was the work, you know. But, um, you know, not everyone has access to that sense of possibility. So how would that happen? You know, but we do have the work. We always have the work. You know, we have the possibility of starting from, you know, way below zero. and and making our way up. And so I'm just sort of spinning with, with that, you know, yeah. it's like a miracle when that happens that there's some, or it doesn't have to be a person. It could be a work of art, I guess, or, yeah, you know, some place or, or something that just opens us to a sense of possibility. Yeah. I guess people have been trying to figure that out for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. Like, is it grace? Is yeah, it, yeah. Is it yeah, chance? Yeah. Is it karma? Yeah. Is it yeah. just because like, yeah. I mean, um, in the Gita, Krishna says that the ways of karma are unfathomable. Yeah. Like you can't, there are too many strands interwoven. You can't figure it out. When things meet, they meet because that's how it's going. Yeah, and, well, uh, I, I was always, I've always been a person who trusted method, you know. And, uh -huh. um, my teachers emphasize that even though, you know, the relationship with them was very, very important for me, but. Um, and it, it's it's also, I mean, it keeps one from being, I don't know if hypocritical is the right word, but it's easy to imagine we are somewhere we're not. You know, one of the things I love about physical practices that I admire about them is that you fall over if you're really out of balance. You know, yeah. it's like, it's evident. You can't fool yourself. You can't fool anybody else. It's like you're lying there on the floor, you know, uh, having totally, you know, been trying too hard or. Not, not really being present in, in some way. And the evidence is just right there. That's a really good point. Like, you know, it, it, and we delude ourselves all the time thinking that our progress is either further or less mm -hmm. than it really is. It, that might even be like um, a bigger um, sort of uh, uh, endemic thing in our society that people feel that they're less... I mean, there's really nowhere to get, right? Yeah, okay, we'll, yeah. we'll agree on that. But there's this feeling like I'm traveling somewhere, you know, there's, there's this thing that I'm trying to move towards, whatever the level of improvement mm -hmm, is in my mm -hmm. life. And most people think that they're less further along than they really are. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And yeah. then they get sad or depressed or, or filled with shame, or they feel like, you know, a little hopeless about it. We're actually, uh, from the yogic perspective, uh, which is my default uh, yeah. mechanism is um, that it, 
if you're showing up for something, if you've stepped onto your yoga mat or if you've walked through the door of a yoga school, like you're pretty much halfway home, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because you're starting, you're, you've recognized that you're suffering. And if you haven't recognized that you're suffering, then, you know, that's really when you're more stuck. Yeah, oh, definitely. It's beautiful. And another reason I find people get very sad uh, in, a, in a way that I get sad about because I don't think we have to go there is that um, – and I would bet this this could be true for yoga as well. Uh, what you'll tell me is that in terms of meditation, people often um, are looking at that formal period. Let's say it's 20 minutes a day where they're dedicating to a formal practice. They're looking there for some sign of progress. And really, we need to be looking at our life. You know, it may not be that you have the great breakthrough experience. Like, oh, I love myself totally now, you know, yeah. at 3.15 in the afternoon when you're sitting. But um, you're different. When you're in conversation with somebody, you're different meeting a stranger. You're different when you yourself have made a mistake and, and you need to start over. And it shows in our life, which is where it really counts. A hundred percent, totally. Um, a bunch of years ago, um, you know Bobby Roth from David yeah, Lynch Foundation. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Uh, Bobby taught me uh, TM meditation uh -huh. and uh, I started practicing it. And I this was sometime in the early 2000s. I can't remember exactly when. And... Um, and my wife, Jocelyn, she mainly, she goes to Barry, Massachusetts, and she, she does the insight meditation. That's what she likes to do. And one day, Bobby was over at our house, and he was talking to Jocelyn, and she said to him, uh, and he told me this later, that um, she could tell that the meditation was working for me because I was listening to her better. Mm -hmm. Like, she could feel that I was really listening to her and um and responding to what she was saying i didn't even realize before she said that that i hadn't been listening to her well <laughs> uh, so what what i usually say to people is that um and what i know about myself is that regardless of whatever changes you think you're experiencing or whatever growth you think you have the real testimony is going to come from either your friends or your husband or your wife yeah, or the yeah. people around you or your kids yeah, yeah. who say you change you, you can't say you changed, yeah. but someone else might say you're different now, and then you know that it's working, and you probably won't even realize it. It's fantastic, you know. And one of the things, because I, you probably know either the same people or an equal number of people, uh, suddenly know all these neuroscientists and scientists who are studying these practices, and um, it, it's a little hard to to think of the experimental design, but that's the design. You know, what about the, your colleague at work? Ask them how you are. Exactly. You know, and, and exactly. things like that. Yeah. Robert Swoboda, the Ayurvedic um, physician, used to say that whenever you do one of those tests to find out your dosha in like any Ayurveda book or online, give it to your husband or wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or best friend to fill out for you about you because right. all you're going to do is pick out the best qualities from those lists. Yeah. Oh, I'm Kafa. I have large liquid eyes <laughs> and flowing hair and I'm kind and sweet to everyone. Like, no, you better let someone else tell you if you're lazy. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, that's a great point. But speaking of science, isn't it an interesting time? Um, you know, you include a lot of science in, in your book or at least a portion of the book, you know, and it's like the language of our time. And so it's it's an important inclusion, I think. And and yet, you know, um the the science, at least in terms of meditation, is so in its infancy and uh really just beginning, um, which they will be the first to say, you know, the people doing the, the research and um 
you know, so I find within myself, it, it's almost like this balance between a modern expression through science and scientific language and an age old, you know, ancient expression through anecdote. And, you know, there was a yogi once who, you know, had this experience or I had this experience 40 years ago. And uh, I looked at that change and, you know, it's just an interesting. Uh, it's not exactly attention, but it's something. It's something. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah. I have been involved in research for about eight years now uh, with my colleague, Marshall Higgins. Um, we're in our third year of putting on our conference, the Yoga and Science Conference. And, um, you know, he is very clear about the limitations of science as a PhD, as a researcher, as a, as a physical therapist. Um, uh, he also knows how research can be used in order to support, support the overall uses of what it is we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So I don't think... You know, there there are a bunch of people, not a lot, but some people who are trying to study uh, enlightened states or states of samadhi or of non-symbolic transcendented experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I think all that is very useful. Uh, I'm a little bit more interested in the nervous system, mainly because it, this is what the yogis were working with, with pranayama mm -hmm. and with asanas. Mm -hmm. And that's largely what I teach. Um, I don't really teach much meditation. Mm -hmm. Meditations mm -hmm. I do are very, you know, simplistic, mm -hmm. entry-level kind of things. But the yogis were really fascinated by the nervous system. They talked about prana a lot. And the main functions of prana are things like assimilating incoming nourishment, removing waste, which can't be, which isn't needed, um, of the assimilated nourishment, spreading it throughout the body to nourish the body. Um, the, um, well, an assimilation itself is one of those things. And then the spreading of that nourishment through the body. And then the last is expression. How all of this nourishment that you bring in, how are you expressing it through your speech and your attitudes and things like that. And so all these five things are the functions of the autonomic nervous system. Uh, they just use the words prana, apana, vyana, udana, and samana mm -hmm. to explain that. And now we say sympathetic, parasympathetic, and we talk about the vagus nerve, which is the largest bundle of the parasympathetic nervous system. And we talk about the um, bidirectional communication between the visceral organs in the brain um, and what that means in terms of how we naturally respond to the world without us trying to have to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, a gut feeling, an instinct, an intuition, mm -hmm. something which is um, pre-verbal and at a lower level than the thought mechanism that's happening in the thing we call our mind, you know, the stringing of ideas together. Um, so all these different functions were assigned to the nadi system, to the three different types of nadis, and to the five pranas, and then the ten upapranas and things like that. But all of those have correlates in the Western vernacular. Um, even Darwin was the first to talk about, he was interested in how emotions were expressed. And he was the first person to identify the vagus nerve, which he called the pneumogastric nerve, mm. which goes from the heart where it does have tendrils coming into the heart. The vagus nerve, for the listeners who aren't aware, we have 12 cranial nerves. The 10th cranial nerve is the vagus nerve, and it makes up 90% of the parasympathetic, 80% of the parasympathetic nervous system. Our sympathetic nervous system moves us towards activity. 
Um, parasympathetic moves us towards rest, repair, restoration, and digestion. Um, there's a back and forth between these every moment of the day. So for example, when we inhale, this is activation. Like if you need to psych yourself up for something, you take a deep breath and then you, you know, jump off the cliff into the, into the lake. When you need to relax, you exhale. So this is a calming parasympathetic. So inhale and exhale happening all through the day, back and forth are one way that we're automatically balancing sympathetic and parasympathetic activity as well as right brain, left brain activity. Um, so the vagus nerve, 10th cranial nerve, is a huge bundle of nerves which goes to the palate, to the larynx, down through the trachea, to the heart, to the lungs, to the liver, the spleen, the pancreas, and the intestines. Uh, so pretty much all of the mm -hmm. visceral organs. Um, we have, and it's a bi-directional nerve, meaning it's taking information from these organs and sending that information to the brain so the brain can decide what to do with it. Um, not everything is happening in this top-down approach where the brain says, this is what I want you to do and you have to pay attention to me. A lot of information is coming from the body back up, which is why this felt sense in all of the uh, Buddhist or Vipassana or insight meditations is so, so important because it's one of the few times where we're consciously coming in, in touch with that portion of ourselves, which is a feeling self, which is telling the brain something, which later gets translated into thought or an idea. Um, so uh, Darwin identified this nerve coming from the heart through the trachea and the voice box, the larynx, um, to the brain and then to the face because from the vagus nerve, there are nuclei attached to the corners of the eyes and the corners of the mouth and other facial muscles, which are expressing emotion. Um, so for example, we feel emotion in the heart, love or sadness or things like that. And he identified that as going through a vocal expression, a tone of voice and facial expression as well. So he called the vagus nerve, the nerve of emotion. Uh, and this is, so it's because of my vagus nerve, I can change my voice tone to be angry or sweet or kind or questioning. And because of your vagus nerve, you can hear the change and you'll identify what I'm, what my tone means. But also you're going to read my eyes, the corners of my eyes specifically, and my mouth as well. So you know if my expression is kind or if it's threatening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So all of these things are being ruled by vagal tone. That's why if someone smiles at you and their eyes are cold, like, you know, you mm -hmm. know, you should beware of them. Right. It's creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's really creepy. Or someone can smile only with their eyes, like his holiness can smile just with his eyes. And, you mm -hmm. know, here's someone who's like filled with love and yeah. compassion. Yeah. Um, so what are, you know, what is the thing which is, is helping to control this mechanism is the tone of the vagus nerve. So it's basically like our muscles can be toned so I can lift up a glass or I can carry a suitcase. If I don't have muscle tone, I won't be able to pick up anything like that. And the vagus nerve also can be toned so that when it has good tone, then we have better cardiovascular function. We have better digestion. The expression of our emotion is better. Um, the ability to read other people's emotion is better. We socially connect. We can more readily move into this non-defensive state that Stephen Porges talks about. When our vagus nerve is not toned, then there are digestive problems like um, IBS, cardiovascular problems, inflammation problems, uh, including things like rheumatoid arthritis and um, uh, also epilepsy 
higher incidences of diabetes and certain types mm -hmm. of cancer. Mm -hmm. So like definitely having a toned vagus nerve is a, is a good idea. So what are some of the things which are going to tone those? One of the things that I uh, uh, wrote about in the last chapter of the book is one of my favorite things of Stephen Porches, who invented this uh, or the creator of the polyvagal theory. And polyvagal theory says that we have three different levels of the vagus nerve that respond to the world in a hierarchical fashion, um, meaning we will, if we're in a very dangerous position and our life is threatened, we'll automatically shut down, uh, traumatized. Um, a, a car accident or we're abused, we'll shut down. We won't be able to express what has happened. This is the nervous system responding in a particular way. If we just feel under a certain amount of threat, then our heart will start to speed up. The blood will be diverted from our intestines, go towards the arms and the legs so that we're ready to run away. And that's fight or flight. And then the last one is where we'll respond in a kind, loving manner in a socially pro-social environment. Okay, so the things that are going to do this, uh, he said there are four of them. The first one is posture. Just sitting up straight mm. helps to control the blood pressure. Um, the second one is vocalization. Um, the third one is breathing. And the fourth one is behavior. So these four things done in particular ways will tone the vagus nerve. So what do we have in yoga? We have postures. Those are the main thing we do. We have breathing like pranayama to help balance the different branches of the nervous system. We have behavior, nonviolence, telling the truth, um, not stealing, sexual responsibility, um, not coveting things that we don't need. And then last, we have vocalization, chanting, um, humming breath, breathing with the sound in the throat, the ujjayi pranayama. Mm. So these four things which Porges has acknowledged or identified as toning the vagus nerve to bring us to our highest, most pro-social states are all the things that we do in yoga. Fabulous. Right? So fabulous. Uh, and then there's another, you know um, Barbara Fredrickson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. do you know Bethany Koch? Uh, no. Bethany is a co-researcher along with Barbara. Okay. So one of their great studies that they did was um, how um, loving-kindness meditation ha Im improves this upward spiral of emotion, mm -hmm. which improves physical health. Right. And the way that they've identified the improvement of physical health through this loving-kindness meditation was by measuring the vagus nerve, the tone of the vagus nerve, because that's an indicator of cardiovascular health and all these other things it's we really talked great. about. It's really great. It's so great. So, this is like why I love science. Yeah. You know, all these yeah. things are like super fascinating, not because they prove yoga, but that's because right. we can see the correlates that they that's have. Right. That's right. And then we have a way to speak with educators, politicians, Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, people who don't believe in yoga, but they do believe in science. Yeah. We can reach out to them in their language and say, this is what's happening. Isn't it great? And nobody can argue with having a toned vagus nerve. Not Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> and it would untone. Exactly. Um, I'm so inspired. I want to ask you to lead a practice in a minute, but I have one more question. Because once we talk about the body and the nervous system, I start thinking about trauma. Yeah. And, you know, how um, these days the uh, kind of current thinking is really about traumas held in the body. It's it's really, uh, it's where it resides. It's where it comes and gets us, you know. And when you talk about that upward flow to, to the way we think, you know, it's like by the time it gets to the cognitive level, you know, everything could be distorted anyway, you know. Uh, and so it seems like what a tremendous and direct application of kind of body therapies, or I don't know if you call them therapies, but yoga and 
Tai Chi and, and the, that class of practices. And, um, you know, and maybe particularly because of the vagus nerve and vagal tone, it's like maybe we see the way that, that it's actually those are so influential. Yeah, I think so. Um, in the introduction to Stephen Porges's book, The Polyvagal Theory, Bessel van der Kolk wrote the introduction. <laughs> and in the introduction, he said how powerful um, Stephen's ideas were on the work that he was doing, um, which is, you know, releasing trauma from the physical body mm -hmm, as, mm -hmm. as one of the first steps. Um, but definitely, um, even on a very minor, minor scale, the yoga tradition says, you have a human body, you're traumatized. Yeah. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Yeah. Your trauma might be small, it might be big, you might collect a lot more as you go through your life. But, you know, one level or another, you are a bundle of karma, which is here because of trauma. So it's time to start unwinding that ball. Take out those knots, one knot at a time and start with the small ones, you know. And then when you get to the big knots, you have to go to someone who can help you untie mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Whoever that person is, whether mm -hmm. it's a guru or a psychotherapist, someone's going to help untie them. That's so great. So would you lead us in a practice? I'm really inspired. Sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, and uh, so as I said, I'm not like a meditation teacher, um, but I'm really um, enthralled with resonance breathing. And I first heard about it from my wife, Jocelyn, when she took a workshop with uh, Dr. Brown mm -hmm. and from who's up at Columbia. And the resonance breathing is basically where you inhale for six seconds and you exhale for six seconds, or you inhale for five and you exhale for five. And resonance frequency is when um, your breathing rate goes down to a cycle of five to seven breaths per minute. And what happens at that point is your heart rate and your respiration line up with the messages being sent to the carotid arteries or the baroreceptors wrapped around the carotid arteries where your blood pressure is monitored and mm -hmm. controlled. And there's basically like a five-second feedback loop by the time messages get sent from those carotid arteries or the, uh, sorry, the baroreceptors to the brain and back down to the heart. So what you're doing is you're putting your breathing into this cycle of how messages are sent monitoring your blood pressure to the brain, down to the heart, and you breathe in that same cycle so that these three things that normally aren't going the same rate, uh, blood pressure, change, heart rate, and breath, they all come into the same sinus waves. So that's why they call it resonance frequency. Now, if you don't care about that stuff, that's, you know, we can put that to the side. What breathing at that rate does is it tones the vagus nerve, it reduces anxiety, it can be helpful for depression, it's helpful for sleeping. Um, and it's also a good way for people who say they can't meditate um, or don't want to meditate to enter into a meditative state because the frequency that happens in resonance is you're at a tenth of a hertz, which means a, six, uh, a cycle of six in every minute. So you're breathing six breaths per minute. Now, a tenth of a hertz for your brain waves is a delta wave state, which means you, you're going into a deep sleep state with your brain waves. So when your breath goes into this particular frequency, it entrains with the brain waves. So you bring your brain waves mm -hmm. into this deep sleep state while you're still awake. And mm -hmm. then you're basically in a meditative state, even though you say you can't meditate. So that's why I like it also. Um, so fabulous. So I looked around for a, um, like uh, an app or something that would help me with resonance frequency. I looked on YouTube and I couldn't find anything that fulfilled like the three 
criteria I had. Number one, I wanted it to be free. Number two, it needed to be aesthetically pleasing. And um, number three, it needed to be easy to use. And I couldn't find anything like that um, where I didn't need a chest strap or something or anything like that. So I created an app and it's called the Breathing App. And now I use it quite often and we, you know, it's free on the Apple Store and all those places. Um, And there's a sound that you can breathe along with or a visual cue if you prefer. And the sound was created by a musician named Moby, who's an old friend of mine. And all you do is you inhale with one sound and you exhale with the other. And you do it for like seven or 10 minutes and everything smooths out. And then that's all there is to it. So what we'll do now is a four minute resonance breathing practice. And you're gonna hear some one sound, which will be an inhale, one sound will be an exhale. Uh, What I like to tell people is if you're not used to breathing longer breaths, um, if you feel any tension, just stop and just listen to the sound for a moment. There's no right way to breathe. You don't want to breathe really long, deep breaths. You just want to breathe slow, smooth breaths. Um, And the main, main thing about it is to breathe as evenly and smoothly as you can with the sound. Uh, When you feel any tension at all, just pause for a minute and listen. And there's no right way to do any breathing. There's just breathing. When we start to pay attention to the breathing, sometimes we overthink it and try to breathe high in the upper chest. If you want, you can keep your hands on your belly and feel the belly moving in and out a little as you breathe so the breath doesn't come too high up. Okay, so let's go ahead and begin and I'll time us for four minutes and I'll talk a little as we do it. So just listen to the sounds for a moment. sound we're hearing now is actually an inhale sound. And then there's an exhale now. The eyes can be closed or open. to adjust to the conscious breathing. flow. Similar to the breathing with sound, which is done in some yoga practices.
move high in your nasal cavity, near where the sense of smell is. And let the breath pass by that area. That can automatically help to lengthen the breath effortlessly. Breathing return to any normal pace. Sit quietly for a moment. And in this quiet space, you can either give a silent moment of thanks or of gratitude, or you can ask yourself, who am I? What is my purpose? And how can I bring my purpose forward into the actions of my life? Those are three good little questions you can ask yourself if you do this meditation or this breathing practice each day, just to orient the compass of your day, integrating sense of being, sense of purpose, and fulfillment through action. That's all. Wow, thank you. Let me give a verbal moment of gratitude. <laughs> really, thank you so much um, for joining me and for the exercise. So it's the, the breathing app for yeah. those of you who would like to follow it. And um, really, thank you so much for coming and, and being here. It's such a pleasure to learn more about your teachings and and work. And uh, for more information about Eddie's many offerings, you can visit www.ayny.org. And I highly recommend that you get a copy of his new book, One Simple Thing, which is available in hardcover, Kindle, and audiobook, wherever books are sold. Thank you. You're welcome. Can I say one last thing? Please First do. Of all, thank you so much for having me on. Um, in January of 2018, just one year ago, I was in Moscow teaching. Oh, wow. It was a nice time to be in Moscow. It's particularly dark and snowy. <laughs> right. I had booked an Airbnb, and I thought I was staying close to um, where my classes were, but it was a little far away. And one morning, a Russian friend came to pick me up and said, she said, you're in a really strange part of town because this is the whole area where the KGB used to be. So it's hard to get wireless access, which was true. And it's a little bit of a, like a dark area. And um, uh, and I'm a big fan of Moscow. I love it there. And um, 
But anyway, so I was in this like sort of dingy Airbnb in this weird part which overshadowed by the KGB old headquarters. And um, I found your podcast. And so every morning, yes. And I, you know, because I hadn't really been listening to podcasts. So I Every morning in Moscow, I listened to two or three of them while I was doing all my yoga practice. I listened to at least two every morning while I was doing all my yoga practices. And it was like so enjoyable to go through them. And uh, so it's an amazing that story. Is, that's how I discovered your podcast. Well, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> thank I don't, you. I, I must have listened to, I don't know how many of them, five days, two or three days, 15 or 20 of them. Easy. Wow. Thank you. And which is the conference that I wrote in my calendar? Oh. For like the next millennium or something. Oh, yes. That's the Inner Peace, the Inner Peace Conference. And that's going to be March um, 21st and 22nd of 2020. Actually, it starts on the 20th. So March 20th, 21st and 22nd of 2020. It's going to be probably in Brooklyn. And you're going to be like one of our headliners. Oh, right. Thank you. Totally. And uh, the it started by two friends of mine in Amsterdam, uh, Wessel and Martin. They run a group of schools called Delight. And their basic thing was they opened a school in The Hague and right opposite the the peace um, building, I can't remember what it's called, the peace embassy or something. And um, and uh, Wessel said, you know, there are a lot of peace conferences, but there are no inner peace conferences. And you can't have outer peace without inner peace. So maybe we should do an inner peace conference. Nice. So we're going into, they're going into the fourth year and I'm a new partner for bringing it to New York. That's so great. And you were the first person we invited. Well, and, thank you. And Deepak was the second, and he said yes also. So we're <laughs> going to keep on expanding it. So mark it in your calendars, folks. It's in my calendar. Awesome. It's one of my only 2020 commitments. Yay. I keep thinking you can't keep living like that, but I wrote it down. <laughs> I know, we, but we certainly can. Yeah. <laughs> and it's on a good day, too, because we have March 20 and 21, 2020. So it's like, you know. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Be cool. there. Great. Totally. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Sharon. It's a pleasure. Great. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com. <laughs>